Spiritual warfare. That's kind of what we're going to be delving into. Last week we had an introduction to this topic where I kind of laid out some of the basics, some of the basic themes, and it was good to kind of get some feedback as we walk through it as what you guys thought spiritual warfare was, what it wasn't. Tonight we kind of dive headfirst into the topic. Where we're going so you have an idea of what we're covering tonight, I want to introduce spiritual warfare, what it is, how it kind of works, just touch on it. And then I want to spend a little bit of time talking about who we're fighting against. I want to just introduce the topics that some people often, we really kind of skip over. What is the devil? Where does he come from? Why is he our adversary? Why is he God's adversary? What are some of the rules involved? And also, just on the other side, many of us know so little about angels or we have misconceptions about what they are. We're going to cover a little bit on that. So by the time we're done tonight, you should know a lot more about the devil a lot more about angels, and have an idea of what the ground rules are for spiritual warfare so that when we go forward next week, we have an idea of what we're doing and where our role fits in. As you know, we need to justify the time that we're spending for the next few weeks to honor God's time so we're not just wasting it. Here are the top four reasons that I collected based on what we talked about last week in our introduction. I think we saw that Christians tend to overemphasize the spiritual realm or ignore it altogether. Last week I gave some examples of people who everything is because of the devil. They take no personal responsibility for anything. It's like anything that goes wrong is, ah, oh, the devil. And then you have people that are on the other extreme completely who ignore the spiritual realm and pretend it doesn't exist at all. Maybe not even pretend, just are lulled into so much apathy about it that we don't care. We're not even aware. It's almost the apathy that I think if you want to look at it the way that some of us kind of know in the back of our mind that millions of people are dying in Africa. But we're so apathetic about it, it's almost like, does it really matter that we know? Because we're not really doing anything. We're not alarmed by it at all. In fact, we don't even think about it. We go along our daily lives and we don't even put one thought into it. That's the kind of apathy I'm talking about. You might know that there's a spiritual realm, but we're not acting in any way that that you could even prove to me that you knew or that you cared. Number two, I want to show you that we're going to be commanded to participate in spiritual warfare. Some people think that spiritual warfare is just something that's going on and we have no part in it. It's just around us. I want to dispel that notion. Third, that there really is a spiritual realm that we have to deal with, that there are devils, angels. We need to understand what they are, not be ignorant. The Bible tells us that Satan prowls around like a lion seeking to devour us. Like if there is an enemy like that prowling around us, we need to know. What is he doing? Can he hurt us? Why is he prowling? Again, most of us just think, yeah, I know there's a devil. Yeah, yeah, I think, theoretically. But he really doesn't have anything to do with my life. And I want to really find the fourth reason. I really want to find us to be well-grounded in the middle. Let's go to the next slide. This is our theme verse that we're going to be covering from Ephesians. It's Ephesians six ten through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Let me break that down. If you go to the next slide, I've actually separated out some of these concepts so you can see why I say that it's a commandment that we be involved in this whole battle. First, there's a general command that says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let's get some ground rules straight. It's God who has the power, not us. There's a temptation when we deal with dark topics to think, well, 
if I just recite some sort of incantation, if I recite some sort of magic prayer that has power, then somehow I'm going to dispel these evil spirits or do something. And it really, the point where Paul is making it very clear, be strong in the Lord, not on your own. We don't have the strength. God has the strength and God has the victory already in his hand. Our job is to be strong in the Lord. That's the general command. And the strength of his might. Here's a more specific command. And by the way, these are written in the imperative. They're written in the tense to command us, not to say, I have this idea you might want to consider. Paul is saying to us straight out, be strong in the Lord. He's saying to us straight out, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. There's a so that in there. Putting on the full armor of God, is there's a reason we're doing it so that we can be able to stand firm, meaning grammatically that if you don't put on the full armor of God, you will not be able to stand against the devil. In the coming weeks, of course, we're going to analyze what is the full armor of God? What are we talking about? And some of you have gone through that before and understand the various analogies or metaphors that Paul uses in the armor, and we'll look at them. But the point is, it's God's might and God's strength. He's given us something to put on to protect us. We should probably do it. And it's a command that we do it because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The struggle that we have is not against things of this world or things from another world. If you think about that statement, what that's really saying is that the struggle that we're having, the struggles and things that you might think are earthly, may have a spiritual source. That's why this tension is hard. It's easy for us to say, yes, we should be in the middle. We should not overemphasize one or the other. But as soon as I throw out a statement like, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, the struggle that you face in your personal life is a spiritual struggle, some of us are already going to start to go, oh, there he goes. He's going to start blaming everything on the devil. Like we have nothing to do with it. I think we had a good, healthy discussion last week talking about, no, we have responsibility But there may be a spiritual element behind the scenes. And it's hard for us to know when when there is and when there isn't. Paul is telling us to assume that there is. This kind of leads us to some ground rules that I think that we should start to use as a common basis for our discussion. Ground rule number one. We need to agree as a group that there is an invisible world. There are examples in the Old Testament. There's examples in the New Testament. Both agree that there's an invisible world. In the New Testament, it's pretty easy. I mean, Jesus is tempted by the devil, isn't he? He's out there fasting and he's tempted. So you see like in the New Testament, it comes right out and says like, here he is. In the New Testament, Jesus warns Peter. And he says that Satan has asked me to allow him to sift you like wheat. So clearly Jesus is very aware of the spiritual world. There is numerous examples. By the way, our temptation normally is to look at the spiritual world and say, Jesus cast out demons. And we're tempted to think that the only time we see spiritual warfare is in demon-possessed people or in manifestations of the devil in people. You know, that's probably a small percentage of the time spiritual warfare is active because Paul is telling us there's an active battle going on for us to struggle all the time. And I'm not saying demonic possession doesn't exist. I told you in our first week, though, we're not going to really dwell on it that much. 
because it's such a small part of spiritual warfare. The bigger part of spiritual warfare is what happens to us in our everyday life and how our spiritual force is working in our everyday life. I mean, imagine if you're Peter and Jesus says to you, I had this conversation with Satan and he wants to sift you like wheat. I mean, if you're Peter, you're probably thinking, you said no, right? (laughs) Old Testament examples. I want to just give you one just to show you that this is not a New Testament concept. In the Old Testament, one of the great prophets was Elisha. And Elisha had strong prophetic powers. So strong that he could see things that were coming and he would go and tell the king of Israel, this is what's coming. The people of Israel had an enemy. They were the Arameans. And the king of Aram came to his people and he said, every time I attack the Israelites, they know where I'm coming from. Find the traitor among us. They searched out the people and they came back to him and they said, the traitor is not among us. Nobody in our camp, nobody in our people is telling the Israelites what's going on. The problem is that Elisha, their prophet, is so powerful that every time we make plans, he tells his king what we're about to do. So the king of Aram was so angry, he decided to set out and kill Elisha. This is where it picks up in 2 Kings. I'm going to read from uh, chapter 6. I'm going to read down to verse 11. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? One of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Imagine that. Elisha knew what words the foreign king was speaking in his bedroom. That's how powerful his connection was to God and to the spiritual The king was enraged, so he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan, the city. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendant of the man of God, meaning Elisha, when his servant had arisen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was encircling the city, And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Imagine the servant gets up and he looks around the entire city surrounded and he knows they're coming for them. And he says to Elisha, What shall we do? Elisha answered him, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. In this scene, what's beautiful is that the servant thinks that they're finished. In fact, the word that we translate alas usually is like, it's over. Because he thinks their time is done. You've really ticked them off this time. And he's coming to kill you. And if Elisha said, you know what, don't worry. The people that are with us are more than with them. He's like, maybe you haven't looked out the window and seen how many there are. But Elisha's response is, maybe you haven't opened your eyes to see who's with God. Elisha goes on to pray, by the way, in the rest of the story. He says, Lord, blind them. Blind the army so that they don't even know who I am. And he goes out to the army and he says, who are you looking for? And they say, I'm looking for Elisha. And they said, let me show you where he is. Come with me. And he leads them right into the Israelite camp. 
the Israelites asked, should we just slaughter them all right here? And Elisha says, no. Why don't you feed them and give them a big banquet and then send them home? And that's what they did. The men realized they were surrounded by the Israelites, that they were finished and done. And according to Elisha's instructions, they fed them. They had a great banquet for the enemy and they sent them home. And the Arameans never bothered the Israelites again. There is a spiritual realm. It's everywhere. We talked last week about examples of the ghost of Samuel or the spirit of Samuel being summoned back up. We know throughout the Bible that the spiritual world exists. But you know, our temptation is to think that was in the Bible. It doesn't exist today. It's not here now. That's all then. Maybe our materialism keeps us from seeing the spiritual. Maybe that's part of it. Rule number two. We're involved in an invisible war. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Though we walk in the flesh. Most of us are comfortable with that. We walk in the flesh. We do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. There's two concepts in that verse that are very important to understanding. These are foundational to what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. Number one, we're involved in the war. And it's not a war of flesh. We are part of this spiritual conflict. Number two, though, begins to tell us what kind of spiritual conflict this is. How does it manifest itself in our life? Paul says we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That's the clue right there. We're going to find out in a moment that the warfare is really going on here, in our thoughts, in our minds. That's where the warfare comes to be the most significant, the most impactful, the most potent. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. You guys know in popular culture we've kind of played with that concept of having an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other. And like they're both tugging at a person saying, like, do this, no, do this, do this. And it's kind of been a funny, cartoonish way of looking at it. But you know what? It's pretty close to biblical. Not that literally on your shoulders there's an angel and a demon whispering. But that really spiritual warfare kind of takes place, if you were going to picture the battlefield of spiritual warfare, as one person says, it takes place between your ears. Because what the spiritual forces are warring over is your thoughts and your mind and your understanding and knowledge of God. I didn't say that. Paul did. We're destroying speculations. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Anything that gets in the way of us knowing God is what the battlefield is about. Here's Chip Ingram. He says in The Invisible War, this is his quote, because salvation involves our minds and the way we see things. We tend to think that the knowledge of God is an intellectual issue. I'm going to stop right there because I think sometimes we're guilty of that. Some of us in this group are very serious about studying about God and knowing a lot about him. So our temptation is to think that knowing is something that's sometimes in our power alone. But a true knowledge of God, remember, comes from the Holy Spirit. 
So think about this concept when you read this again. Because salvation involves our minds and the way we see things, we tend to think that knowledge of God is an intellectual issue. But it is more than that. It's a spiritual and moral issue. The God of this world has a master strategy to blind the minds of people so that they will not be able to grasp the truth. That's the strategy right there. If I can find a way to cloud your mind so that you cannot grasp the truth of Christ, that's what the battle's about. That's where spiritual warfare comes down to. I mean, if you think we're going to be studying this invisible war and our participation in it, what are they fighting about? Well, they're fighting about you and everybody else in the world. And the battle is taking place between our ears, as some people would say. Our way of fighting is to take every thought captive and continue to resist and know the truth about God. And to pray for spiritual help in doing that. Because somebody's job out there on the other side is to try to cloud your mind. Or try to cloud you or keep you from the knowledge of Christ. So when I said that Paul is saying we're destroying speculations, every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God... We, meaning Christians, Christians are commanded to take every thought obedient to Christ. But there's still a force that's trying to raise up against the knowledge of God. I think there's two strategies. So let's just get right into it. What's the devil's strategy? Last week, we kind of generalized and said, look, if you're Satan and you've lost, you were unable to get Jesus to sin. So now the perfect sacrifice has taken place. It's already over. What would you do with the rest of your time? You would probably try to bring down as many people as possible. I mean, you've got nothing else to do. God is delaying the punishment of Satan till the end. Satan knows it's coming. We know it's coming. I mean, it's no secret. Satan doesn't have to be a seer to know. You just read the end of the Bible. He knows what's coming for him. So what would you do in the meantime? You'd try to take down as many as you could. So I break that down into two categories. He's going to try to take down Christians, and he's going to try to take down non-Christians. If you are a non-Christian, what he's going to try to do is just blind you from ever getting there. I think he does that through distractions. I mean, I'm not alone in thinking this. Most people, this is a pretty common view, that what Satan is thinking, all right, if there's only one way, then I'll just distract them with any other way. And it doesn't have to be worship of Satan. In fact, that's probably the last thing he does. He's much more effective when he's not even a a factor. Worship of money, worship of yourself, worship of beauty, worship of sex, worship of your job, worship of anything that keeps you away from Jesus. By the way, some of those things I think are even our society would call good. Like you might dedicate your whole life to saving the oceans, for example. There's nothing bad about that. But if your life is dedicated to saving the oceans and you missed the whole point about Jesus because you were too busy saving the oceans, you missed the point of the life. And Satan is just as happy to have you dedicate your whole life to saving the oceans. He doesn't care. Because he's blinded you from getting a knowledge of the truth and saying, oh my God, this life is more than the oceans. It's about Christ. So I think that whether it be other religions, whether it be things that are more popularly associated with Satan, like you know New Age stuff, spiritual things that involve like tarot cards, occult, wick, all that, or just be like, you just worship your job or your kids, or money, or whatever it is, and you're out chasing something that isn't Jesus. And that's what the battle's about, is that if God is saying, all right, I have the victory, and now grace is open to everybody, Satan is saying, I'm going to prevent them from knowing it, 
And the whole battle is over demons on one side trying to keep us from the truth. And I honestly believe that means, by definition, angels on the other side trying to get us to the truth. Now, how that formula is going to work is what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks. Like, what role do angels actually play? I mean, I think that they're just the agents of God going down to battle Satan's forces. But how does that work in keeping us from the truth? That may be the mystery. That's what we're going to be looking at. But Paul's pretty clear the battle is going on about knowledge of God. That's what the stakes are. How much like freedom does Satan have? Because the examples were like Christ was like, yeah, he asked me for permission to toss you around like wheat or whatever. Or like Job when Satan's like talking to God, like I can get him to turn away from you. God's like, do whatever you want, except for kill him. He's not going to turn away from me. So like, that's so confusing to me. You know what? I'm going to ask you to hold it for just a second because I'm, I'm going to answer it. But maybe I should introduce who, who Satan is first. Let's lay some ground rules on who Satan is and who angels are. And then we'll come back to deal with two troubling questions about how much authority or how much of a leash does Satan have. And at the same time, what kind of free will do angels have? Who is the devil? Now, on this slide, I've actually put down the verses that source the descriptions I'm about to give you. Because most of us, if you asked us to look in the Bible, would not be able to find these. One of the reasons is they're scattered all over the place. The references to Satan are very obscure. Uh, Another reason is because, like the Messianic prophecies that we studied, they're a little bit obscured by the context, okay? I'll give you some critique of them in a second, but let me tell you first. Let's introduce who the devil is. Number one, he's a created being. I'm referencing Job 1.6 and Colossians 1.16. He's created. He was created by God. Like all things. That shouldn't surprise us. But let's just define him from his essence. Number two, he is an angel. Matthew 25.41 and Revelation 12.7 refer to him as an angel. Number three, he's a specific type of angel. He was a cherub. The highest class of angels. In fact, he is actually referred to as the first among all the cherubs. Ezekiel 28.14 tells us that he was the highest of the cherubs. In Ezekiel 28, 12, and 13, he's described as having been created perfect. I think perfection in this case refers to without sin. And I think we can say that Adam was created without sin because the first time he sinned, he was thrown out of the garden. So to be in the garden, he was created without sin. But he's still, as you see the first one up there, a created being. No, actually, God forbid the fruit on his own because he said there's some things that man shouldn't have. But you have to look at a view of God that goes even bigger than that. He knew from the beginning that he was going to create a garden. He knew from the beginning that man was going to fall. And if you want, we're going to come back to Monique's question, but I'll give you a hint. He allowed Satan into the garden. I mean, he could have said, Satan, you can't come into the garden. We'll come back to the leash that the devil is on. Let's get through these two slides, and then I'll give you my take, and then we'll take some questions on it. He's created. He's an angel. He's the highest of the highest form of angel. He's created perfect. He had his own heavenly estate, the book of Jude tells us, Jude 6. And he was, this is the one that of all of them gets me the most. He was the guardian of God's glory. One of the reasons it's so hard to nail down specifics about Satan is because, like I said, one, the references to him are obscure. They're scattered. Let's put it that way. They're scattered. And second of all, I mean, and they're, they're not many. And second of all, they're obscured by the fact that most scholars will tell you 
that you could just as easily interpret those passages to mean an earthly king that was living at the time. So this becomes one of those textual issues that we had before with the Messianic prophecies where something that is written about an earthly person actually gives us a metaphor of something else. The reason we know that it can't be the earthly king is because you're going to see in a moment what that person says they will do, and no earthly person could have done this. I mean, it's clear that the reference is to the devil. He has more power than anyone in the universe except God, says Isaiah. That can't be a king. He was more beautiful than anyone or anything, and that's the reason that this whole issue, we always think of the devil as well, you know, just picture whatever you can think of. I mean, you know, you're always thinking of evil incarnate in this way that we, you know, just looking at him would be scary. Imagine, if you will, the devil as the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life. Still? I don't know. I mean, you know what? You know what? The reason I think still is because he's still the most tempting thing around. And because it says that he comes almost as an angel of light. That's what they describe the devil as. I've often thought if you're going to smell like sulfur and like, is anybody going to follow you? But what if you're like the most beautiful thing, angel, whatever it is that anyone has ever beholden, ever? Isn't that the picture of the perfect tempter? And here's his rebellion against God. Isaiah 14, 13 and 1 Timothy 3, 6 tell us that it was the sin of pride. Here's right out of Isaiah 14, 13 what the verses describe in in Isaiah. This is what the devil actually says, what Lucifer actually says. I will ascend to heaven. It's a challenge to God. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. The stars of God almost refer to the other angels. So he's saying, I will raise my throne to rule the angels. It wasn't enough for him to be the beholder or the guardian of God's glory the most beautiful created being in the universe, it wasn't enough for him. He wanted to rule the angels himself to take God's place. He says, I will sit on the mount of assembly. That's God's throne. I'm going to sit on God's throne. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. In the Hebrew, when you talk about the clouds, they were often an image of God's glory. You know, the Israelites, they followed the cloud Jesus said in his trial, and behold, you will see me coming with the clouds of heaven. And the guy just said, I can't hear anymore. Because he was identifying himself as the deity by using the word the clouds. And here Satan is saying, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be greater than God's glory. And then, of course, if you just needed it spelled out for you straight, I will make myself like the most high. That's Satan. That's what we know about him. That's, in essence, everything that describes how he came into being. Now, we have interactions with him in the New Testament where we see demons possessing people. We see him tempting Jesus. We see him in Job coming to ask God for permission to torment Job. Which brings us kind of to the question we have about the devil and his power. All of the biblical examples seem to imply that he must approach God and ask permission at times to do certain things, like he does with Job. Like he comes to Jesus and asks him permission to allow him to sift Peter like wheat. 
The devil is not, in his rebellion, an all-powerful being. He's still subject to the creator who created him. And if God wanted to, I think he doesn't have to wait till the end to snuff him out. He could do it now. Which leaves us with those lingering questions that we always ask about. Why was he created in the first place? Why isn't God ending his reign now? Why is he allowing him to do things to people? Look at the things on the next slide. You can see some of the names that he's given. You think, like, why doesn't God just curtail this kind of nonsense? Here's some of the names that he's known by. Satan, he's the adversary. Job 1, 6-7 and 1 Thessalonians 2, 18. Satan literally means adversary. Devil means slanderer. 1 Peter 5, 8. Lucifer, son of the morning or shining one. That's found in Isaiah 14. Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, Matthew 12, 24. He's referred to as Balliel, which is a false god in 2 Corinthians 6, 15. 1 John 5, 19 refers to him as the evil one. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, the tempter. John 12, 31 refers to him as the prince of this world. Revelation 12, 10, the accuser of the brethren. Yes, he's still somewhat of a mystery. But I think we know everything we need to know. Beautiful, perfect, created, first among all created beings. And then what did he do? He wanted to be greater than God. He wanted to be in God's place. That pride caused him to fall. By the way, pride is his favorite trick. When he came to Eve and then to Adam in the garden... What was he using to get them to fall? Same thing that he used to fall himself. He was saying, he just doesn't want you to be like him. Eat the fruit, then you'll be like him. That's exactly his old trick because that's exactly what caused him to fall. He wanted to be like God and he thought, how do I get these humans to fall? Oh, I know. I'll use the same thing that worked on me. Don't you want to be like God? Eat the fruit. He just doesn't want you to be like him. He knows if you eat the fruit, you will be like him. That's Satan. The Bible also intimates that a third of the angels went with him. Let's look at the angels for a moment before we cross the question of angels and free will. We know about the devil. What about angels? They also are created beings. They're not human. I know most of us know that, but I put it up there because we have this twisted temptation to believe that somehow they're like us. They're not. They're a different created being than we are. They're created, they're not human, but here's some of the functions they serve. So let's, let's just briefly describe what some angels do. They're angels that give provision. I cite to 1 Kings 19, 5 and 6 where an angel provides water to Elijah. So angels can actually come down and provide. They provide guidance. In Acts eight twenty six, Philip is told where to go by an angel. Now, keep in mind, God has told this angel to tell Philip where to go. The angel is the messenger, but they can provide guidance. They can provide encouragement. Acts 27, 23, during a fierce storm, Paul is told that no one on the ship will be harmed. Don't worry, you'll be okay. They can provide protection. We know the story of Daniel in the lion's den, where the angel shuts the mouths of the lions in Daniel 6. They can also rescue. Same book, Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. When the king looks in there, he sees what? Four people. Because an angel is standing there the entire time, keeping them from being burned. So it provides this kind of rescue to them. We have warrior angels. We just talked about 2 Kings 6, 
That whole story of Elisha where the chariots of fire surround the army. There must be warrior angels because they have cool chariots of fire. You know? So that's, they're not showing up for the baking contest. The most controversial one is, are there guardian angels? Now, if you ask America, of course there are. Didn't you see Touched by an Angel? If you ask biblical scholars, the one that they'll cite as coming the closest is Psalm 91.11. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. So let's put it this way. There's thin evidence that angels perform a guarding function of us. And if they did, I don't know that every one of us has our own personal guardian angel. I think they have important things to do. Pagan and secular views on angels that I want to dispel that I want to just make sure that we're not in agreement with. We don't get to contact or commune with the angels, right? I mean, they may contact us because they bring a message to us, but we don't get to, like, call on them and have them appear, which there's books written about this. Um, There's books written about how to love your angel, like your own personal angel, and how to pray to them. Clearly, not scriptural at all. In fact... You might just call that either like, you know, pagan, secular, whatever. But, but remember when I told you that, that Satan loves to distract you no matter what? You don't have to worship a demon. I mean, he's happy if you worship Gabriel. He doesn't care. He might be a little jealous because they fight sometimes. But I mean, as long as you're not worshiping Jesus, he doesn't care if you worship Michael. There's a lot of misguided Christians who believe that, you know, like they will pick up books on angels and they'll think that what they're doing is they're, oh, but it's a book on angels, so it must be biblical. And they're really, it's more new age or it's more this kind of metaphysical world. It doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. So here's another one, gaining instruction, insight, or knowledge from angels. Like literally seeking angels almost like mediums, you know. It's no different than playing with a Ouija board and asking a demon to help you out. Calling upon named angels. There's whole books out there that name the angels and tell you what each one does so you can get the right one. Seeking special supernatural power or knowledge from angels. And, and this, this sounds a little bit strange, but there's whole cultures out there, even among Christians, that will say what you need to do is pray to this angel or ask this angel to help you because this angel's function is this. Now, we just talked the fact that angels do have functions. But nowhere in the Bible does it go, okay, now let's break down their names and give you a list of addresses and like a, like a directory of angels that you can call upon when you need special help in a certain area. Here's one that's very common among us well-meaning people. Belief that humans can become angels. Like little Susie died at two, so she's an angel now. Might help the family cope a little better, but she's not an angel. Belief that humans are already angels. That's kind of a new one. There's actually books out there about find the angel within you. (laughs) You These are not biblical views about angels. We can easily dispel the easy stuff. Let's talk about the hard stuff. Angels do have free will, is the consensus among most theologians. Here's how they know that. Because the devil fell. And so did a third of the angels. But here's the rub. Those same people that believe that angels have free will, and it seems like the proof is in the ability to fall, say that Christ's sacrifice does not apply to angels. If you choose to fall and you choose to disobey God, that's it. The battle's been clearly drawn. You're either with God or you're with Lucifer.
And one more proof that gives us this, 1 Peter 1.12 gives us this. It says that the angels long to look into the things that he's discussing, and those things are salvation and grace. This is what gives us the clue that once you fall as an angel, that's it, you've chosen. The intimation of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, is that angels long to have the choice of salvation and grace bestowed upon them, but that Christ's sacrifice was for us. Yeah. God is a relational God. So what is the purpose of giving the angels free will? Well, you could take either the view of God's design from the beginning that because he needed someone to fall to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden, that this could be part of what was given. Or you could take the other view that they're different than us in terms of their function and their role, but that doesn't mean they should be robots. It just means that they differ from us. They get to see God every day, okay? This is a more complicated answer than I think I want to go into, but let me try it this way. Faith is those things that are believed but not quite seen. I believe that God knows that there's an element of faith that must be involved to transform us and to save us. That belief in a seen God sometimes may not be enough. It's probably why he doesn't just show up all the time. And he honors faith that's a believing, saving faith in Christ. Maybe, just maybe, this is my speculation, that the angels, because they see him all the time, don't get the same nature and quality of faith that is transforming and saving that we humans have when someone says, Jesus died for your sin, whereas the angels, are, I don't, for lack of a better word, they're robbed from an unseen faith because they were created in the throne room of God and they deal with him and they interact with him every day. They don't get that flavor of faith that we do. Now, this is sheer speculation, but we know from the Bible that that degree of faith, that texture of faith, is what turns the key. And we also know that it's divine in Hebrews as that unseen kind of faith. So, you can poke holes in that, but for some reason, if you take it from the other side, circumstantially, we know that the devil fell, so God couldn't have created him without free will because he obviously exercised it. And other angels chose to follow him. So right there, that gives us a texture that they have at least the freedom to fall. Maybe they don't have unlimited free will. You know, maybe they have like an on-off switch. Like they just have two choices. What's odd about this is they saw God and they fell, right? I mean, that's bizarre. This is the part that enders the mind-boggling where we can, we, our finite minds are going to stop. Like how could Satan know that he was created by God and see God and then say, I'll be greater than you, like. Was he a child? How does that happen? We are at the edge of our knowledge universe at this point. And the things that we're comfortable dealing with, it looks like a very dim light, very far away. And that's a little bit why I think the air is thin for us right now in terms of like grasping onto something real. You know, like saying like, oh yeah, I can understand that with my mind. And maybe he was saying, you don't need to know the specifics of how Satan got to be where he is, just know that he's there because the end result is what you see. But I think I want to lay down the basics because there are some people in this room who, one, have spent their whole life wondering where Satan came from. I think there's some of us who uh, labor under misconceptions, and I'm not sure we're going to resolve it. 
yeah, there are just going to be some things that you just go, all right, that's, that's your domain, not mine. So basically, with the angels, it's like one point in time, because they live on a different plane where time and space is totally different than the Earth. So they have one intersection in time where they had a choice to either stick with God or go. I think maybe they still have the choice today. Yeah, because I think that one of the misconceptions a lot of Christians have is that in, once you cross into the heavenly realm that you're outside of time or outside the bounds of time. And I think actually a more correct interpretation is God is outside of time. Everybody else is in the timeline. Now, it may not be the earth's timeline, but there's only one person that is eternal in both directions and outside of time by definition, and, it has, and that's God. We even understand that. Exactly. And so, How can you fall if you don't have free will? I don't know, but... All right, wait, wait, hold on. See what we're doing. What we're doing is what's common among most Christians. We're disagreeing over the semantics of the of the word. Take free will out. Maybe it's a loaded word. Angels have a choice to fall or not. Just say it that way. They still have a choice. I don't know that they still have a choice, but they clearly had one at the point that Lucifer fell, and they might still have it today. I don't know any reason why they wouldn't. Like, why would God say, all right, I'm going to give you a choice right now. All those people want to stay, raise your hand, and the rest of you, you know, you're out. But those who stay, you can never make up your mind again. Like, I'm taking your, your choice away. But I think we can at least say, or we need to say for the rest of it to hold true, that they had the choice to fall. Because otherwise, you'd be saying that he made them fall. I think, I think the evidence of the Bible would weigh heavily on the side that they chose to fall. By the way, notice the verses in Isaiah and Ezekiel, because it's Lucifer who is acting, not the Lord. He's saying, I will do these things. I will ascend. I will take your glory. There's no, I don't think God is like making him do that. I mean, he is making a decision to equate himself with God. That's why I believe he must have had the choice. If you want to take away the words free will with a capital F and a capital W because it's close to what humans might have, hey, look, they may have a different texture of freedom than we have all right, And maybe it would be cruel to assume that they have to sit there and be perfectly sinless while they have free will their whole lives, you know. Um, yeah, maybe free will is the choice to fall or to stay worshiping the Lord the whole time, certainly. Since he was a guardian of God's glory, he was also aware or actually maybe misinterpreted the amount of power God had and thought that he could overtake him. He convinced the other angels the same, but he was just wrong. God came in and said, you're done. Goodbye. Look, if you're the most beautiful and you're the first created and the highest of everybody and you get the special treatment with God, maybe after a while you just go, I want some of this. I want some of this for me. Like, why should it just be for you? I am the first. I'm the most beautiful. Let them worship me a little bit. And probably God turned to him and goes, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> and that was the beginning of the fall. Tonight, we're starting to understand some ground rules. We have an idea of who Satan is. Maybe we're all not going to agree on how he was able to fall or for what purposes. Maybe we're not all going to understand why God would allow him to do it, but we know he's there. And we know it's too late for him. And we know the end is coming for him. And we know he is trying to screw it all up for everybody's left behind. We also know there's angels. They're created, they're doing God's will, and they're fighting the battle. So we've got demons, we've got angels, and between your ears... Is the battle for you to either know or not know Jesus. That's what we're going to be talking about is that part. And like I said, that's why I keep coming back to it's not just intellectual knowledge. There literally is a spiritual component of knowing God.
if you want a good book on angels, Billy Graham has written a really good book on angels that a lot of people read just to discuss what their roles are and what they do and what they can't do. But here's one story, just in all the research I did, just so that you know that I read worthless things too. Um, Story about angels guarding us. There was a woman walking down the street and she's walking in a particularly bad neighborhood and was walking and had heard that there had been a number of rapes in that area. And as she was walking home alone down the street, now you're asking yourself, like, what is this story about? Like, why don't you just don't walk down the street? Like, the end of the story. But anyway, she's doing it. And she sees a man standing there eyeing her the whole time she's walking by. And he can see her, and she's very frightened. And she thinks, this is going to happen to me right now. And she can just feel it. She just keeps walking, and he just goes on. Nothing happens. She reads in the newspaper the next morning that a woman was raped in exactly the same place that she was walking that night. And it totally freaks her out. But she decides to call the police and say, I was walking by that same place and I got a good look at the person. I can identify him for you. So she goes to the police station. They put him in a lineup. She identifies him right away and says, that's the guy. And, of course, that's the suspect they have in custody for whatever's going on. The end of the story is she wants to know why he didn't rape her. Because he clearly saw her, he was clearly aware of her, and she was clearly frightened. It seemed like an easy catch. Why did he rape somebody else and not her? And they ask the suspect about her. Now, I don't know why a guilty guy sitting in a police station is going to say this, but according to the story, what he says is, oh, yeah, I remember her. But there's no way that I would go after her with those two big guys walking next to her. And there's like hundreds of stories like this in these books on angels that you can pick up that people like will tell these stories where, you know, Apparently, he saw two huge guys protecting her on either side and keeping her safe. Now, I'm only pointing that story out because, one, there's a part of my heart that goes, yeah, right, you know. But you know what? If we're going to believe that things in the Bible happen, why don't we believe that they happen in our own daily lives? And if we believe that the, that the, that the angels have these functions, guardian functions, protective functions. If they're going to rescue Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if they're going to bring water to Elijah, why don't they protect a woman walking down some bad neighborhood? The problem with that is because then you have to ask, what about all the women in the world that get raped, beaten, mugged? What about the people who fall off cliffs? What about the babies that you know fall into a pool? Like, Where are the angels then? And you have to go back to saying... Our belief is not in angels. Our belief is in God. If God wants to act, he can act. And if he wants to act through his angels, he can act through his angels. I mean, they're just there for him. He could do it himself or he could send them. So our focus shouldn't be on the angel. Our focus should be on why does God allow things to happen? And that's a whole different topic and we should go into it someday and just spend time on that. But the point is, people obsess over the fact that there were these two guys next to her as opposed to focusing that God chose that day to intervene and save that person. And then we wrestle with all the people that for some reason he allows to go through their circumstances. And as God said to Job, when Job said, why, God never answered him. He just said, I'm the Lord. I know and I need to know. You don't need to know. I'm the Lord. Okay, so our focus needs to always be on God and not on angels. And that's the reason I kind of debunked some of the, the, the myths about them. All right, next slide. Where are we going next week, just so you guys know? Do we have a role in this battle at all? What is it? How do we fight it? Can Satan defeat us? If he can, how? If not, why is he even fighting? We're going to be kind of just addressing some of these things. 
And I think the most important one is how does spiritual warfare look like in our daily lives? And these are all nice big topics, but we've got to bring it down to like, how do I recognize it in my life? How do I know when discouragement comes from Satan or, or just because I'm just bummed out? How do I know when events that happen come from Satan as opposed to just circumstance? All right, that's kind of where we're going.